Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's my great pleasure to host Merav Mack. Merav is currently affiliated with the uh, Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, and is the author of a number of works, particularly about uh, religious relations in Jerusalem uh, in the medieval times, but more importantly, recently with uh, uh, Benjamin Balint, she published a fascinating book, Jerusalem, City of the Book, published by Yale University Press. And it's, it's an amazing story that we will talk about, uh, the story of the libraries of Jerusalem and how you can actually read the history of Jerusalem through the books that are in Jerusalem. But first of all, Merav, welcome. Hello, Roberta. It's really nice to be with you today. Marav, the first question, as usual, is what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Um, well, it's quite simple. Jerusalem is home for me. Um, I've lived in different places in the world, but Jerusalem is home. And it's perhaps more than that. I find um, Jerusalem an endless source of fascination, of inspiration. Um, there's a sense of adventure about it. Which, which I'm sure we'll get into. But um, I guess it's um, above everything else, it's an identity. I'm, I'm a Jerusalemite. Um, my family has lived there for hundreds of years and I am connected to it in so many different ways. I wanted to ask you about uh, your experience, uh, you know, growing up as a Jerusalemite. Many people on the show, uh, obviously, are Jerusalemites and each and one of them brought uh, something unique, something of a different experience. So I was just wondering about uh, Merav growing in Jerusalem and how you, know, how you feel about the city. I, I think what I like mostly about Jerusalem is the sense of, it makes me a bit humble. It's a place where on the one hand I am from and I belong to it and I love it, but at the same time, you know how you can just cross a road and you are you fall immediately into an entirely new world. Um, and there are so many such places in the city that make you feel that you make you feel like you're going abroad, that you are visiting somewhere else. Um, it's not just crossing the divide between East and West Jerusalem. It's um, it's it's almost everywhere. It's going between the different religious communi communities. Um, it's going into different, even if you step into Mesharim, um, you cross from one kollel to another, you go behind, you know how those um, 
streets with long walls inside the old city and you sometimes you just um, have this urge of just knocking on the door and discovering that you know on the other side there is an entire world that you didn't know about even though you walked there like hundreds of times um, I, I love that sense and I love the fact that there's so much to learn about it um, that there's no one language that is enough for this city in that sense I feel that it's a very humbling place and it's the same in the same token, it's that sort of fascination um, and the sense of adventure. So you go into the street and you discover a, that it's a holiday for a community um, that you just didn't remember because, uh, you know, we have at the same time three different calendars going on. Um, and beyond that, there are little calendars um, that each community would have. So. Um, even though I'm very acute to those ritualistic, the main calendars, um, then it, at the same time, you, you're just still surprised by stumbling into a procession that you didn't expect by when you walk in the streets. Do you know what I mean? As I lived on and off in Jerusalem, too, at some point, I remember I really had to remember uh, going, you know, for work into different institutions, uh, whether it was open or closed because it was a specific holiday or a particular day throughout the week. And, and it's something that obviously perhaps outside Jerusalem, it's not uh, that common. You take for granted that, you know, it's the week is from Monday to uh, Friday. Uh, maybe, you know, again, depending if you're like in Israel, for instance, obviously uh, Shabbat, uh, it's holiday, or if you're in the, the West Bank or, you know, obviously it's Friday, but then Jerusalem has its own calendar because it depends on the community that you belong to or you're, you're working with. And I never thought about it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I see what you mean. It's like, it's also fascinating that aspect to consider. But I also love this idea of... Uh, discovery, the, the fact that every place you go, there's always something uh, that you don't know about. And, and I was wondering if there's anything that stood out in the past few years, perhaps while you were walking around Jerusalem and all of a sudden you made the discovery, say, you know what, I've been walking here for decades and I never thought about this or I never saw this particularly. I think that when you do, you know, when you, you, you stop for a moment for an observation, I remember, for example, one day standing at Jaffa Gate. I have arranged to meet someone and I arrived about 10 minutes, maybe earlier. And it was a wonderful um, afternoon because there were like a lot of processions on that day and people were walking in large groups and each one of them was had a purpose, but nobody knew about the other one. Um, so there were Orthodox, Greek Orthodox coming out of the old city um, at the same time as um, Armenian were, were walking in procession into, um, into the city. Um, there were um, some uh, Jews walking in, in large, large numbers. Um, and the scouts were marching as well. And it was, and each one was like, doing their own thing without thinking about the others but it was it was just wonderful and i remember remember years later when i was teaching um a course at the hebrew university i sent my students to various points there they were they they had a little mission of going to document a holy site or you know another option they they were allowed to choose a ritual that they were going to observe and I asked them to, to document what they were looking at. And after looking at it from the main perspective that they were asking themselves or that they were going to discover, I asked them to then turn around and cross the street and go and talk to people on the other side. So for example, if they were uh, documenting a Christian ritual to then go and talk to um, a Muslim passerby or a shopkeeper or a Jewish person, ask them how they feel about it, what they thought about was, what was going on to just get the other perspective. And 
it was a fantastic exercise because you get so many um, views about the same situation, about the same place. Um, and I, I think that's part of the layering um, understanding of how deep this city goes, um, that you can explore it forever. And, but, but you're asking me about um, specific um, discoveries and, and, and I think I, I can remember quite a few moments of discoveries. Um, you know, the first time you go into a library that you've been hearing about and never been able to, to access. Um, for me, that was just utterly amazing. Um, being taken around um, the Armenian Centaurus um, library. This is one of the, um, this is a manuscript library inside the Armenian quarter, which is not only closed for, um, for the public, for the, for the world, but even for the Armenian community. Um, it's just always closed and it opens only for just one day a year for a religious ritual. Um, and unless you have a very special reason to visit it, there is no, it's, it's just locked. I hope one day our common friend, George Intlian will allow me to visit that place, which always promises me to do, but uh, it never happens. I wanted to ask you something <laughs> about uh, your work. You, by definition, are a medievalist. And in your bio, it, it, I mean, anybody can read that. Your, your PhD thesis was on Genoa, uh, the city of Genoa in northern Italy, at the time of the Crusades. So I, I think it's kind of natural to think about how did you end up working on Jerusalem? Um, that's that, that's a great question. Um, I did start as a my academic um, career as a medievalist, and in fact, I'm, nowadays maybe I will talk about it later. I'm going back into um, more work um, on into medieval history, um, but um, I, I think that the two things were connected. I mean, my interest in history started when I was. Um, um, 14, I remember my parents took me on an academic course. We, we lived in Jerusalem. I grew up in, in West Jerusalem and they took me on an academic course of three days exploring medieval Jerusalem. Um, it was led by the late professor Joshua Prava um, that everyone in the field of Crusader studies has, has heard of. <laughs> He's very legendary. Uh, professor of Crusader Studies, and he took us around Jerusalem. I was, I just immediately fell in love with the city in a way that um, I didn't expect because I, I, I grew up there and I walked in those streets for forever, but suddenly I went into places that I've never been to before. This was um, the first time I visited um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was the first time I went into the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Um, it took us, of course, to Abu Ghosh and to so many different places. But um, so it was that sort of moment when I thought, oh, I'd love to learn more about this period in the history of Jerusalem. And I thought it was just amazing that there were so many buildings um, that I could look at, that they were actually there uh, from the time of the Crusades. Um, and the city itself actually hasn't changed that much, not in size, uh, not, no, not in its layout, um, main streets, the main corridors, the main, uh, even the buildings, um, you know, um, it, they, they're all still there. Um, and so that was my first fascination with the Crusades. And um, years later, I was um, I, I explored more um, other aspects, Italian um, communities in in the Holy Land um, uh, during the the Middle Ages. Um, the Genoese, as you said, that was my that my, my PhD project, which I totally loved because I was following the sort of people that nobody was interested in examining at the time of the crusade. It was not about the heroes um, of the crusade 
the period, the fighters, the kings, it was merchants. Nobody looks at merchants. And I found them fascinating. And, you know, the people that go in between, that communicate with everyone. And to a large degree, I think that um, my interest in looking at the kind of like standing on the borderline between communities, looking at the perspective of, for many years, I've been exploring the Christian communities in Jerusalem. That's a sort of, exactly this sort of aspect. It's not looking at it from the perspective of the national divides, the big um, stories that everyone else is looking into, um, but actually looking at it um, from a perspective of the smaller communities. Um, so those merchants, um, led me straight into discovering the um, the Christian communities um, and ultimately into the streets, back into the streets of Jerusalem. I suppose there's a general, I don't want to say ignorance, but lack of knowledge about the fact that European cities, particularly around the period of time, and it, mainly Italian port cities, had this... Uh, a very uh, strong connection with what was known as the Holy Lands uh, through trade and commerce, not just through conquest and military adventures. Um, even the way Italian history is taught, and as an Italian, I can certainly say that, that is not really highlighted. Normally the medieval times go from the Dark Ages and then obviously through the, the Italian republics. Uh, but there's a lot more attention, for instance, uh, around the Silk Road than the connection with Palestine, which I, I personally believe is was stronger and even in terms of legacy, uh, long lasting. I mean, think about the, the, the buildings. Sometimes when I, when I go around uh, um, Israel or the West Bank in Palestine and you see certain names that are obviously are reminiscence of, you know, not just of the Crusader, but also by names you can make connections with uh, places uh, that I'm familiar with. I wanted to ask you something because you, you talked about, you know, your interest for religious communities and particularly uh, with the Christians. And, and I remember in old, old, it was just about four years ago, an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museums in New York, which was called Jerusalem 1000 to 1400, Every People Under Heaven. Uh, and I remember I just had the chance to briefly uh, visit uh, that exhibition. And one of the interesting aspects it was that the whole idea was that people of Jerusalem, regardless of uh, you know, their, their religious affiliations, but they shared this idea of uh, heaven somehow. And most of that was about books and manuscripts, obviously. And so that brings us to your your new book, your new work, uh, ideally, you know, how did you come about the idea of writing a history of Jerusalem through books and an history of libraries of Jerusalem and in Jerusalem? Um, so the libraries of Jerusalem, I mean, um, first of all, maybe I should say that I, I agree with you that I think the exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum was absolutely outstanding um, and a very much a source of inspiration. Um, they, um, the creators were working on their project right as I was working on this book, on the city of the book. And we met many times both in Jerusalem and in, in New York. Um, I, uh, I contributed a little bit to this um, exhibition as well, but um, um, the project itself, the library project, came to me um, when the first time um, that I actually asked to do a survey. I wanted to find out, I, and this was a little bit funny because I, I, I remember vividly um, thinking that um, we really need ought to find a way of digitizing all the secret archives and libraries and um, and make them available and create perhaps a joint library for the whole of Jerusalem. This was back in when 2006, 2007. And I remember going to the 
to the funders and telling them, you know, I'll probably need something like three months to go around and survey the libraries, find out, just to find out what exists, um, if they need any help, and if they, and how to go about it. And little did I know that this project will just be a beginning of a long, long, many year project of exploring libraries. Um, not only that the majority were not interested in digitizing anything, they didn't even want me to go in. Um, and <laughs> I was totally baffled by this at the beginning. But um, um, I, I think later on that became the whole project. It was, it was, it was infuriating at the beginning because I couldn't understand why. Why wouldn't you let me into your into into your library? I knew some of them before I was um, already friends with um, um, the person who was um, at the time the librarian of the Greek Orthodox library, um, Archbishop Aristachos, um, who is today the uh, Secretary General of the Greek Orthodox Library, oh, the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. Um, but um, so he took me in um, a few times into the amazing Greek Orthodox Library, um, but I couldn't understand why others um, kept their doors so firmly closed and what was a big secret and what was a big problem. And, and, and I found that so, um, so infuriating at the time <laughs> that um, I wanted to understand it. And that became the mission for partly for the book. And later on it changed um, because one of the, the interesting or funny turns of this uh, project was when I realized that actually those, those guardians, those custodians of libraries had a completely different understanding or concept of a library than I was thinking about. You know, you and I and all of our friends who are historians are used to thinking about libraries as places that, you know, librarians would invite you in, would help you to find what you're looking for, would uh, be interested in your project, would be uh, maybe even dedicating a bit of time to do a bit, a little search with you. Uh, and here I came across something that, again, I mean, it's not entirely unusual. We know that in quite a few places, but the, where the librarians are more of, a, of guardians. They are suspicious of people who come in and perhaps rightfully so. I think the, the wonderful moment uh, of realizing that these custodians, they are there to protect the books. They're not there to help me or any other scholar. They're there to protect this heritage. Um, and it's a completely different task than what I was thinking about. And gradually, um, I realized that there are those custodians are at least as interesting um, figures to understand as the books that they are guarding. And to a large degree, I think that um, City of the Book is, um, is about them and not just about Jerusalem and not just about libraries. Which is a very challenging chapter i would say in the book which is about rescue and return which also is a reminder of the fact that uh, libraries suffered the consequences of war particularly in 1948 and i was wondering to what extent uh, this event and perhaps also 1967 may have created that sense of uh, suspicious of the idea you know to be closed instead of to be outward and open the doors of their libraries. Absolutely, I think that um, the sense of losing of losing your books, of losing your um, connection to um, to your heritage, um, losing losing your identity. Um, the books are are so much. Um, part of our of our life and our understanding of who we are. Um, if I could just find the words of Sakakini, where he writes about his own library, about uh, farewell to my library when he left 
Jerusalem when he had to flee and had to leave the library behind. Um, what a what a, a horrible moment um, in one's life. Um, I think there's, there are very little things that people are as connected to as their books. And here we, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the, the different notions of what, um, why those books are so important to people, I think I, I find um, extremely interesting. And the loss of, or, or what might lead to a loss um, is definitely one of them. And it's not just 48 or 67. I remember one day um, I, was, um, I was talking to one of the um, Greek Orthodox um, uh, leading scholars and, he, and I asked him about the library closing to, to scholars for a while. I mean, they were doing some renovations, but there were repeated stories about not giving access to scholars and I asked I asked him um, what is it about the library that you don't want people to get into what, what what's the problem and he said one word he said Uspensky <laughs> and I thought Uspensky who is Uspensky I've never heard that name before is it someone I know and he laughed and he said no 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 this is um, someone from the 19th century and so I did my little research about him and found that um, Bishop um, Porfirio Spensky um, was the first to be sent on a mission from, um, from Russia um, to, to the Holy Land, to the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. Um, but he ended up being one of the people who were trusted um, and then betrayed that trust and stole from the library. Um, I remember finding a little in the uh, National Library of Russia, there's a web page about him. And there's a little quote where he says about himself. Um, let me see if I can find it for you. He says, he compares himself to a bee. And he says, he says, why do I walk the earth so long to bring like a bee, beautiful honey to my hive? I'm God's bee and Russia is my hive. And this is um, this is his justification for for um, spiriting off books, manuscripts from uh, Jerusalem, from Masaba Monastery, from Sinai, from many other places that he visited, and taking them back um, to Russia. And he was not the only one. Um, the nineteenth-century discoveries of the of the manuscript libraries in throughout the Middle East, um, where time when um, books had been stolen um, frequently from many of those institutions. So there's no, there's no wonder that there is need for the sense of protection and for uh, taking special care of those um, treasures. At the same time, as growing um, understanding that um, that these treasures need to be also shared with the world. And I think in throughout Jerusalem, which I find um, a great um, sense of change in that, in when, when it comes to the libraries, more openness to digitizing material, to making them available. Um, even across um, very sensitive political issues, um, a, P manuscripts, um, which are the um, the property um, that was, for example, that you mentioned earlier, uh, the forty eight manu books and including some manuscripts that uh, were taken from houses um, that are now um, kept at the National Library of Israel are gradually becoming available online. Um, even in places where, for example, in 2007, when I went first went to visit the ultra-Orthodox archives, and they would, their first reaction was absolutely never going to digitize anything because the internet is a terrible place. <laughs> um, or the whole idea of the internet is against our belief system, they were telling me. Um, not everyone, of course, but quite almost everyone nowadays making things available online. 
Um, so a lot has changed over the years. And, um, and I think we can find more, more and more uh, material available. And it's also, I think, the understanding that this is another way of actually safeguarding um, the treasures is to also um, have a copy, have a digital copy, um, and is, is another way of doing, achieving the same goal of, of protection. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You made me think about a uh, passage in The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco when, and I forgot the name of the main character, but uh, uh, played by Sean Connor in the movie, when in the middle of a fire, he's trying to save the books and the whole point is about preserving the heritage against all the odds, whether it's war, fire, or natural disaster. I wanted to ask you something. You worked in, in a number of libraries in Jerusalem, and you talked about the question of access. I was wondering if gender uh, might have been a problem, given that you had to deal with religious communities, and some of these religious communities do have a, shall we say, distrust of women. <laughs> That's really fun that you're asking me this question because um, I was thinking about it earlier today. Um, I remember when I first started the, the whole idea of doing a survey of the libraries and archives of Jerusalem, I did what I normally do in such cases when I start a new project and I went to meet people and ask for their advice. And there's one person that I loved very dearly, and I often went to visit her. This was um, Sister Abraham. I don't know if you had the chance to, to meet her. Probably not. She used to live on the Mount of Olives um, at the Benedictine um, nunnery. Even though she was not a Benedictine uh, nun herself, she was a, she was, um, she belonged to the Ethiopian church and um, she was a woman who spoke, I don't know how many languages, um, but something like 15 maybe. Um, 
known as um, Sister Abraham. Um, she wrote um, the history of the Ethiopian community in Jerusalem. She wrote a lot about um, various aspects of life in, in the city. Um, and she told me in that meeting, she said, you know, it's not going to work. They'll never let you in, not to any of the important libraries. And she said, it's not because um, you come from Jewish family. It's not because you are, um, and it's not because you are an Israeli, it's because you're a woman. <laughs> and, um, and she was absolutely sure that I'd never managed to do any of what I was set to do. And I'm very lucky that um, she was wrong. Um, it was, doesn't mean that it was, that it's easy. Um, and it remains difficult because my current project, um, I'm now, I'm going to go back into all these same libraries for a new project that I will probably talk about in a few minutes, but um, it's, it is difficult, um, but it's not impossible. And what I actually discovered that um, part of the difficulty was my own biases. I'll give you an example. Um, in the original survey, I kept the ultra-Orthodox communities to the very last. I approached absolutely everyone else and, um, and I thought they will never meet me. They will never let me into their communities. And I would, was totally wrong. I walked in the door and, and, and when I arranged a meeting, I walked in, well, I was dressed up modestly, but I did, I do anyway, and I do, um, and I do that when I go for meetings with the WAF, so it's not a big deal. I, I walked, um, I dressed up um, in long skirt and, um, and went to see the rabbis in, in Mersharim, and they were incredibly nice and incredibly open to, um, to, to preserving and uh, protecting their heritage. They didn't like the idea of the internet back then, but as I said, even that has changed since. But it was my own biases that made me think that they would not let me in. Um, so this is just, um, just one example. Um, in other places, I came across a lot of different obstacles. But I can give you another example. Um, with a Syriac community, I found it very, very difficult to, um, to, get, to get access. I'm not the first one, I'm not the only one. Um, people were reporting about it in their academic um, articles um, for, for many years. But I think the moment that I realized that it was not about me and it was not even about um, such big fears of theft in that particular case. But when Abuna Shimon, the, for the first time, um, when, I felt, when I first realized that what actually drove him to not let me in um, was a sense of shame. He was simply ashamed about the state of, of his manuscript. And, you know, when you start realizing how wrong was um, my own perception of what motivated him or motivate people in general, um, then you, you begin to understand the, the city and its complexities um, because it's so much more complex. And this is where I wanted really to, to go. I, I think I mentioned before the interview to you that I, I was blown away by your book because in a sense, it's not only about the, the period of time that you cover, which also goes up to the, the, the modern era, but certainly covers uh, the very beginning also the, the early and later uh, medieval periods of the city. But I was fascinated by, by the idea of reading the history of Jerusalem through these institutions. And so I was wondering, what is that we can learn about Jerusalem looking at the libraries in the city and their history? So this is quite a big question. I mean, I think it's, um, it's easier to think about what can we learn about it through the eyes of particular people. And I can, again, draw us into examples. 
um, for some reason I'm thinking of one of the most wonderful librarians in the city, um, Dr. Khada Salame, who is nowadays in charge of the Khalidi Library. Um, but previously he was the director of the Al-Aqsa Mosque um, Museum and Library. And um, it was through him that, you know, I first tried to work out what it was, what it meant for people to become even librarians and to become those custodians of knowledge and books and manuscripts. And, um, and I remember I asked him once to take, to take us on a tour. It was um, my co-writer, um, the wonderful Ben Ballant and I and Hada. We got into the car and we drove first to the village where he was born, um, Zakaria. Today it's called Moshav um, Zakaria, and where he showed us around the village and told us the story of the Nakba as he experienced it. And from there we drove all the way over to um, the Dehesha um, refugee camp where he grew up. And I just wanted to understand how someone grows up in a refugee camp and becomes a librarian and ends up being a protector of such, um, of, of the written heritage. Um, and it was piecing it together. You know, he had a great passion to, um, to inscriptions and to piecing broken inscriptions together. And seeing him do this work, I felt that we are beginning, that I am almost, I can almost touch what it means to be a Jerusalemite or, um, or putting together those broken inscriptions and putting together that history that people don't usually tell. Um, and that's what I find so attractive and so interesting in, in exploring libraries um, because I, you find a completely different story um, about relationship between individuals and between communities when you look into the medieval, for example, libraries of Jerusalem. Um, my, my current project, um, as I said, it comes, it really started when I was working on the libraries. At some point I started looking for medieval, not just medieval actually, but books that were written in Jerusalem in particular. So visiting those libraries, I wanted to know what was created in the city and what um, what we can touch that was actually born and thought about and uh, imagined and and produced in the city. So this book production, um, and I was very much um, surprised because I knew from my work on on Crusader Jerusalem or medieval period of Jerusalem, I knew of some manuscripts. Um, you saw them at the, um, or some of them, some of the most beautiful ones at the, um, at the exhibition at, um, at the Metropolitan. But um, I started, I started listing them and trying to put them together, partially um, because I'm now planning to have um, with the National Library of Israel, we are going to have um, an exhibition in 2024 on the libraries of Jerusalem. And we thought um, that we will focus specifically on those manuscripts that were written in Jerusalem. And then you discover how many we actually have, many more than I have ever imagined. Um, when I started thinking about it, I had listed maybe 20, 30 manuscripts that I had in mind. And those numbers have doubled and doubled and doubled. And now my lists are coming up to um, 300, 300, 400, um, just for the period between, of medieval period from 900 to 1500. Um, so going from the Abbasid period through, um, through the Frankish Kingdom of Jerusalem um, into, I don't have much from Ayyubi Jerusalem, but um, Mamluk Jerusalem. We have an exceptional number of manuscripts and the link between them 
is what I'm fascinated by. Um, because take, for example, um, the Abbasid period when um, not just Muslims immigrated into the city and produced um, and, and brought in new way of thinking and writing and, and new language. And everyone was, you know, Arabic was um, introduced to the community and adopted by the, the local community. And suddenly we have um, local um, Christians and then Jews adopting Arabic as their language as well. Um, and going through translation projects. Um, it's just utterly fascinating to see that they translate similar texts, biblical texts at the same time, um, how, how language plays a, a huge part of, of people, people's um, life in the city and how much more interconnected it was. Um, I think, and, and I wonder if you'd agree with me, because I think that we quite often project ideas from what we see in the in the reality of Jerusalem today, and we think, oh, that might have been the same in the past. And I'm not sure. I don't know how disconnected were the communities in medieval Jerusalem. I'm beginning to suspect that much less than um, than we might have um, assumed, but I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> One thing that comes across your book, and again, this is my reading, despite the obvious disruptions brought about the change in uh, administrations, uh, which also meant obviously warfare and you know massacres and killings, but effectively it feels like a cer certain aspects of cultural life within Jerusalem from the Byzantine to the Abbasids and the Crusaders, and then again, uh, Islamic rule and so forth, there's a sense of continuity. People change language indeed from Greek to Arabic, uh, but quite interesting in, in the Crusader period, uh, the, the essentially Arabic kept to be sort of the educated language. Uh, obviously we can add, you know, some, some sort of a European Frankish language for a short period of time, but it feels like uh, that despite the disruptions uh, of life, th there is uh, the sense of a, a cultural element that it's basically that it keeps going. And I don't know if it's a misreading or if it's, uh, you know, also what you argue in the book. You're right, actually. Um, I think that um, culturally, um, this is, um, there's a very deep culture that goes beyond those um, temporal um, disruptions um, being national wars or, um, or earthquakes or disasters of different kinds. Um, there, is something, um, there is something deeper in the city that remains and it just needs to be explored. And of course there are times when, or there were times in history where culture had much more uh, prominence, partly because it was given much more funding. Um, take Frankish Jerusalem. We like to take that example because it's it's really um, was a spectacular time um, under um, the rulership of someone like Queen Melisande, the most amazing woman who ruled the city, who was um, not many, not everyone knows that, but um, she was the queen um, of Jerusalem for a long period of time. She was um, she was. Armenian, um, her mother was Armenian, her father was Latin, um, and, um, and she was brought up in the Orthodox tradition. Um, she supported um, and funded uh, not just architecture, new building, new churches, um, but also writing and scholarship, um, libraries, um, she helped um, not just Latin institutions, but also um, the Armenians and the um, and and the and Masaba Monastery. Um, so way beyond her immediate close um, community of the Latin of the Latin community in in the city, and um, and we see that in the book production of the city at the time. So from the same at the same time when. Um, 
when in perhaps the most wonderful example um, is the Psalter that is known as the Medicine Psalter, which we're definitely going to bring to the city for this exhibition in 24. Um, it was a it was a Psalter written for her. And we know that not because she signed her name on it, unfortunately she didn't, but she had in the calendar um, of the Psalter, she had the date of her parents' um, uh, memorial days. King Baldwin II and uh, Morphia, the Queen of um, Jerusalem. And so we know it was a personal Psalter that belonged to her. Um, but the people who were involved, there were different hands involved in the writing of the manuscript itself. Um, and the art is entirely um, in the Greek Orthodox tradition. Um, and so it really shows this fusion that existed between the communities in this in the cultural production um, of the manuscript. Um, a similar situation we have in another manuscript that was written uh, by an Armenian. We know that because he numbered the pages, um, even though it's written in Latin, he numbered the pages in Armenian letters. Um, and at the same time, we have um, manuscripts produced by the Syriac community, by the Greek community. Um, so I think by putting these together one along the other, I think we may be able to learn much more about the interaction between, between the people. Um, of course, there were no Muslims and Jews in Jerusalem at the time, but um, in, in during the Frankish kingdom, but, um, but in other periods we would have them. Um, added to the story as well. So, for example, when the Crusaders conquered Jerusalem, um, they took hold of um, of Jewish manuscripts that they allowed later on the uh, Jewish community in Cairo in, in Cairo to ransom. Um, and so they ended up in Egypt. Um, and you have those manuscripts circulating and telling us a story of the city also as a story of refugees. Um, and that was true for the Middle Ages. And as you said earlier, um, it's true for, sadly, it, it was true for the city uh, even in the 20th century. I'm glad you are going back to work on uh, the medieval history of Jerusalem, because I must admit that the very little I know, it's mainly through the reading of the, um, the book by Jacob Lassner, um, the medieval history of Jerusalem. I think it was the name of of the book, or which speaks volume about not only my probably lack of knowledge, but also the fact that when I browse libraries for in, you know looking for more contemporary material about medieval Jerusalem, I feel like it's a, some sort of a neglected period. And I was wondering if you share the same view, and perhaps why is that. Uh, scholars do not focus too much on that period of time? <laughs> Funnily enough, um, whenever I think about it, I think, oh, I'm stepping into a field that is probably, um, it, it's probably saturated. Um, so many wonderful scholars have written about, um, about medieval Jerusalem. Um, starting from my, all my professors um, at, first at the Hebrew University and then uh, in Cambridge and um, in Paris and who who didn't touch, who didn't write about um, Jerusalem. But um, at the same time, I think that um, there are various aspects that have, as you say, have been utterly neglected. Um, Part of it is because, I mean, we it's not like Ottoman Jerusalem. We don't have those wonderful archives that you were able to walk into and study. Um, the archives of Jerusalem are, were alleged from medieval Jerusalem, from the Crusader period, were alleged to be taken over to Damascus by Saladin. And um, uh, maybe they will be discovered one day, but... Um, um, and some has emerged, some material has emerged over the years, but, um, but we don't have that at the moment. Um, at the same time, if you take um, the work of archaeologists, um, 
Dennis Pringle, who um, wrote um, and dedicated an entire volume just to the churches of Jerusalem, for example, um, going through each and every building in the city. Um, there is still so much more to be done because, um, because a city, as you know, um, at least as, as well as I do, is built on layers and layers and layers. And that's the idea. We have the same thing in, in manuscripts. We call it um, palimpsest. It's when you have a layer, a, a book that was erased, and then the same pages were used again to write a new story, a new, um, a new manuscript on top of it. And when you think that that the first book is disappeared, um, modern technology allows us to actually read and find, rediscover the layers below. Um, there are a few wonderful such palimpsests in the libraries of Jerusalem until today. Um, but the city itself is like this. And on the one hand, it's very difficult. It, you, you walk through the city and you see the layer that exists and you can visit it. Um, but there are layers below it. And I think it was on your program that Nazmi Jube, I remember uh, describing um, almost falling into, into such a layer that nobody has seen before and how excited he was to discover it. Medieval Jerusalem has, uh, is very much there, but it needs to be discovered. And there's much more to be done about it. It's not just the Holy Sepulchre. Um, a lot has been written about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre alone, but there's so much more. Um, I think the Orthodox Church alone had um, a, a 14 different uh, churches across across just the in the old city, and they all exist until today. So exploring them. Um, in a much more detailed way. Um, many of them belong to communities that have no presence today. So take the Georgian community. It was so prominent in Jerusalem all the way from the fifth century um, into the 17th century. They had numerous monasteries and churches and um, the oldest inscription in Georgian in the world is in Jerusalem um, today. So we sometimes forget about those smaller communities, but, um, but they're part of the story as well. I re very recently, I didn't even know that, that there were so many Slavic um, manuscripts um, in Jerusalem and still are in Jerusalem. So the, yes, there's a lot more to still to discover about the medieval um, city through the books and through those libraries. I never thought about uh, these communities as uh, belonging to Jerusalem, it's kind of like um, more than fascinating. It really shows the fact that we still have a very partial knowledge of a city. Um, I was thinking about the Georgian, but often uh, I, I associate uh, the Gurji community, so the, the Jewish community, uh, originally from Georgia, but never the Christian. So again, it shows the fact that there is a sort of a, a constant uh, discovery of uh, uh, aspects of the city and as you mentioned uh, earlier i mean this is a, a layered up uh, uh, history that dates back millennia and therefore the complexity of writing this book which is also intertwined with the uh, with the politics of the various days uh, and so some may appear some may disappear and you made me think also about uh, uh, places like uh, marsaba which is a fascinating uh, uh, location just uh, uh, south of Jerusalem, if I remember well correctly, the, the, the directions. But uh, it's one of those monasteries that uh, you may have heard about it, you may have known something because someone mentioned, but uh, often goes uh, neglected uh, even uh, by tourists. Uh, and I understand the restrictions to visit the place, but still it's a fascinating uh, uh, location, which is also connected with the history of the city. As we reach the conclusion of the interview, Merav, I want to ask you something. Is there anything that I didn't ask or you want to discuss? Yeah, um, then before, before we touch on that, I want to say something about Marsaba because like you, I have special affinity to that place. Um, it's one of the places that I love mostly. And um, 
And, and it's a funny thing because you asked me about being a woman and problems that I might have in uh, getting access. Um, and um, of course, Ma Saba is one such example. Um, I, as a woman, I cannot go into Ma Saba um, because this is a vow that was made um, in, um, in the fifth century and it's valid until today that women will not be allowed into, uh, into the Ma Saba monastery. But um, whenever I went there, I've always um, sat outside and I made friends with um, Father Ephraim, um, who is one of the guardians of, of the monastery. And we spent many hours um, sitting outside and talking. Um, on one occasion, I was allowed to go and visit um, um, some of the cells around the monastery. They used to be part of the monastery in the Middle Ages, but are not included in the enclosure, enclosure um, today. But he's he, he took me around and we talked a lot and it was I remember the day when I it always begins with um, looking at the water and he's trying to calculate the time when I can come and and get into the monastery or not me but when men can go into the monastery when the next prayer is there's always there was always something about trying to calculate the time and I asked him um, why is it so complex um, to calculate the time and he said um, and he explained to me that in the monastery they change um, they change the time every week so you know how we change time like in um, saving time like summer saving and um, light saving um, in, in and in the monastery they change it every week and it's a place that has its own time there he says he described how he stands at the top of the um, of the monastery and looking at the cave across and when the sun touches the cave where Saint Sabbath um, used to um, to live then that would be the time that he would set the time um, again and it was a practice that was quite common in monasteries in the Byzantine period but it remains so in Jerusalem, and I was um, not in Jerusalem in, in the monastery of Mar Saba, and it just reminds me of, um, you know, how there are so many things that we take for granted, but are can be unique and individual, and such as time in the monastery of Mar Saba. Um, you ask me what else there is to say. There's so there are so many stories, there are so many people I would have liked to mention and talk about and, and thank because um, you know when you go on when you carry out projects like this, um, you are depending on the help and support of so many different people um, and those who make the introduction that you know vouch for that you would make a good introduction that you would not um, harm them, that you would not represent them wrongly in the story later. Um, and um, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know where to, to start. Um, I think I have tried in, in, in the book to, 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 to do right to those, to all those people that have, um, that have opened their door. Um, in some ways, I feel that this is a bit like what you are doing in this podcast, like talking to people is just one of the most wonderful ways of um, discovering a place. And it's very similar to, to what I try to do in, in the book of, in City of the Book. This was Merab Mack, affiliated with uh, Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz, and together with Benjamin Balint, author of Jerusalem, City of the Book, published by Yale University Press. Murav, it's been a pleasure having here at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you. Thank you, Roberta. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Even 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.